Amen. Now, I wonder if we could turn in our Bibles tonight to the Epistle of Paul to Titus. And we're going to read the first chapter of uh, the Epistle, the Epistle of Paul to Titus, and be getting at the first verse, Titus chapter 1, and beginning our reading at the first verse. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which was committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour. For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. And we'll end our reading there, when the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. I want to spend a few weeks in our prayer meeting taking a look at this uh, small book of Titus. The book of Titus, as you can see from the very first word, was written by the Apostle Paul. It speaks of Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the recipient of the letter this time is not a church. It's not a body of people but it is, as verse 4 says, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. He was obviously saved under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We're told elsewhere that he's a, a Greek. In Galatians 2, verse 3, it says, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And so this man is a Greek. He's not of Jewish heritage but he's saved by the grace of God. And then later he becomes a servant of God. He goes to Corinth. Uh, it says in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 to 17, But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you, for indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went on to you. So there is Titus. He goes to Corinth. Uh, and on Paul's third missionary journey, Paul arrived at Troas, wanting to meet Titus, but misses him. And then the two of them meet up again later on. Uh, Titus rejoined Paul at Philippi, and there he received the letter of the Second Corinthians and brought it back to Corinth. But then sometime later, both Paul and Titus go to the island of Crete, and it is in Crete that Titus is when this letter comes to him from the Apostle Paul. He has been set in Crete to set in order the churches and to make sure that the elders are ordained in the churches. And he is in the island of Crete uh, when uh, the Lord sends him this letter. And not only uh, does the letter come to him, but we think of this island where the letter did come to. 
It was an island that was known for its uh, iniquity. It was the island of Crete. To be a Cretan or a Cretan uh, was to be a liar in those days. Indeed, the Greek word for Crete is a word in the Greek that is allied to the word for a liar. That's what they were. Even today, to call a person a Cretan or a Cretan is something that is, uh, it's it's, uh, a slight against somebody to call them a Cretan. It uh, just means today that they're ignorant and uncivilized. So this thought about the Cretans or the Cretans or the Cretans we might say uh, they, it is something that has come down through history. These were an uncivilized people. These were a people who were liars and known for their lying and for their iniquity and their sin. But also we recognize that the island of Crete was uh, located in a very strategic place. It was right there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It was on a place where uh, different trade routes would meet. So Paul saw that this was a place that the gospel could spread out from and where the gospel could go. It was fertile soil for the gospel. But it was a place much like our 21st century where there was paganism and where there was rejection of the gospel, where there was a society where or morality, rather, had been overthrown. And so, as we look at this portion of the Word of God, it is strangely up to date. And God is able to transform the lives of these creatures and bring them uh, the Word of God and bring them into saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is still the same power to transform as he did with the people on that Mediterranean island. So we just want to uh, take a look at the epistle of Titus for a few weeks. And first of all, just I want us to look at the opening verses just to set the stage. And I want you to see as Paul speaks here, he speaks about the contrast that he was to be. Now look at the opening verses there. He speaks there of Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. And if you look at verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now, you, you know that I've just said that the Christians were known for their lies. You, you can see, if you look at verse 12 there of Titus chapter 1, it speaks of one of their own philosophers or prophets. It says, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. They, they even delighted in that. They, they thought, that they, even their own, said that this was the kind of character that they were. They were always liars. And so now, when you look at the opening verses, you can see the way that the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the truth. You notice, um, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth. And then he says that God is a God who cannot lie. And you can see that, obviously, 
the apostle is drawing a contrast between the kind of people that the Cretans were and the kind of person that Titus was to be or any child of God was to be. They were to be honest. They were to be truthful. They were standing for the truth and preaching the truth. And they were built upon a foundation of truth. And of course, that is the same with every child of God in every age we're standing for the truth. We live in a day when truth is set at a discount. We know that from the very news over the last week, how the House of Commons has voted against the former Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson because of lies, because they have said that he lied to the House of Commons. And when it was during the lockdown, you know the story how that there were parties in Westminster and in Tory party headquarters, and while other people couldn't meet their relatives or couldn't go into homes or couldn't really even bury their loved ones, there were these parties and these get-togethers that were taking place in the uh, Parliament in Westminster. But they found that uh, Boris Johnson uh, lied about this. And in fact, the report found that there was no precedent for the scale of the lies as Mr. Johnson uh, misled Parliament in five different ways. And we know that in Northern Ireland. He told us lies about the protocol, that there was going to be no Irish Sea border. We think of a poll that was taken in 2014 about lying, and it said uh, that uh, the average person in Britain lies ten times a week, and two-fifths of the people thought that lies were sometimes necessary. Now, it's gotten much worse since then, but I think that that's a gross underestimate because there was another survey that said that people lie about 25 times a day. And I think that probably that's closer to the real figure. You say, well, that couldn't be. I, I don't lie 25 times a day. Well, hopefully not. We are children of God. Uh, we don't lie. But, you know, you, can, you, you think, for example, the telemarketer comes on the phone and they are trying to sell you something that you don't really want and you say, well, I don't have much time now. Well, you might have some time. You might have had time to listen to them. But you say, oh, I don't. And we, we, ju we just do that and we don't think about it. Maybe uh, it might be a lie. It might not be a lie. But so often it is that we can just pass over things and we can do things. And sometimes we don't even recognize the lies that we tell. Sometimes we mislead people without telling them the actual lie, without actually telling them the wrong thing. We can give them the wrong impression. And you say, well, I didn't tell a lie. I, I didn't, miss, I didn't uh, tell uh, somebody something that was wrong. But we still managed to give them the wrong impression. And we can do it in so many ways. But Paul here is emphasizing the difference between the child of God and those that are in the world. The pagan is a person that lies. Uh, the unsaved is a person that lies. And sometimes we devalue lies and we don't think that it's much of a, a big deal. But you turn over to the book of Proverbs and look at uh, Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 16 to 19. And we have there 
seven things that the Lord hates. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 16 to 19. And it says there in that portion of Scripture, he says, uh, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Now, those are seven things that are abomination to God. And you'll notice that two of them involve lying. A lying tongue is the second one, and then a false witness that speaketh lies uh, is the uh, sixth one. So we could say that there are a number of things that are abomination to God, and one of them is lying, or two of them is lying. Two of the things, the seven things that are abomination to God, two of them are lying. So we can see that God is taking this seriously. We know that lies are of the devil. We read in John 8 and verse 44, where, uh, where the Lord said to the people, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your fathers ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So when we lie, we are doing uh, the devil's work. We are following the devil in what we are doing. But we see the contrast here that Titus was to be. He was not going to be like the people in the Isle of Crete that were liars. He was to preach the truth. He was to be a person who has acknowledged the truth, and he's going to serve the God who cannot lie. But not only do I want you to see the contrast that he was to be, but look at the crux of what he believed. Paul says there in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. Now, he speaks then of the truth, and he speaks of the faith that he has. And he begins to mention different aspects of the faith, and it is founded on the Lord Jesus Christ, is not founded upon the sinking sands of the paganism of this world or that which the Christians believed in. It was founded in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is alludes, if you look in Titus 1 verses 10 to 11, he says there are false teachers. He says, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouth must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. So there's wrong doctrine. If you look at chapter 3, verse 9, he mentions them again. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. No, so there are those that are coming with false doctrine. And so, at the very outset, I want you to see that Paul 
says something to Timothy about the truth, about real, true doctrine. And I want you just to look at what he does say about those things that he believes. And the first thing that I want to point out is that truth brings salvation. He speaks there in verse 1 of the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Now, the two things, um, to uh, use a, a grammatical term, are in opposition. The faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth. In other words, what I, I'm saying is that those two things are equivalent to one another, or they're just two ways of saying the same thing. The uh, faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When we come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come by faith in the truth that God has revealed. We come to acknowledge and recognize the truth that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God and that we must come to God by the way that has been revealed to us in the truth of God's precious word. Now, that's something that we should underline because our faith is founded on the truth. Now, there are many atheists today, and one of the things that they will say about our Christianity is that it is a, a blind faith. They say, well, you come with a blind faith in God, and they reject blind faith. They want to think to themselves that they are being rational and uh, that they have a rationality. Well, they are they have a blind faith as well if they want to term it like that because they believe that there is no God and they have a faith that there is no God. They don't like you to say that, but that exactly is what is. They have a faith that there is no God, an atheistic faith. But what I want you to see is that our faith is not a blind faith. Our, our faith is because we've acknowledged the truth. The truth has been revealed to us through the Word. The faith has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And we begin to get a glimpse of reality. We begin to get a glimpse of the reality of our own hearts. We begin to get a glimpse of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is a spiritual realm, that there is something out there. The atheist sees the world simply as materialistic. They, do, they are blind to the spiritual realms and to the spiritual aspects of everything around us. And their best explanation is what they can see. Well, we uh, do believe, but our faith is founded in fact, and it is founded in the Word of God. We can see, as we look out, we can see that everything is uh, designed, it fits together, everything is to a pattern, and the uh, mathematician knows, or the scientist knows that he can examine the world because there is a pattern to it. There is a, a, it has a, a way of going. And the only way that that can be is that it is designed. So when we look at things, we see... The God is out there. We, we have had revealed to us by the word of God that this is the truth. We can see that's the truth about our hearts, that we're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. 
And our faith then is founded on fact. It's founded on the truth of God's precious word. So you can see about this truth then leads us to salvation. When we begin to see the truth, it leads us to the great designer. It leads us to the great God of the universe. And we are brought to salvation by the truth. But not only does truth lead us to salvation, but truth leads us to godliness. Look again at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, or according to godliness. And it's that little phrase at the end, which is according to or after godliness, that I want you to see. Faith and the acknowledging of the truth will lead us to godliness. It will lead us to fear God. It will lead us to be obedient to God. Because when we see that there is a God, and when we see the truth and the reality of spiritual things, it leads us to worship God and be obedient to God. Now you notice the order. Faith comes first, and then the acknowledging of the truth. You can see sometimes people think well, the, the acknowledging of the truth and the godliness comes afterwards. Sometimes people think that they can get to God by godliness or trying to bring in godliness into their lives, trying to renovate their lives. In other words, salvation by works. But you notice the order. Faith comes first, and the faith, the true faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, leads to godliness. Any type of trying to be godly does not lead to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Faith without works is dead, but Uh, the uh, faith that is alive leads us to works. And you can see that in the Word of God. We come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we do come, and when we see the might and power of God, it has to lead us to God. It's got to change our lives. If we see that there's a God out there, a God who is to be served, a God who is above all things, then it's got to lead to godliness. There are those that teach that as long as you said the sinner's prayer, it doesn't matter how you live, you can uh, live the same life, you can live an ungodly, uh, sinful life, but as long as you said the sinner's prayer, you're saved. No, if you are truly saved, then there's got to be a change in your life. J. Vernon McGee the American radio preacher said, My friend, if the truth that you, uh, that you have does not lead to a godly life, there's something radically wrong with your faith. So we notice that truth leads to godliness. And then I want you to see the truth leads to confidence. Look at verse 2. In hope, and I hope that I've said a number of times and more than often that hope in the Bible is not just a wish or a hope so. It is an expectation, an expectation that is founded in faith. But he says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Faith is believing and trusting. It is confidence in him. It's like the parachute Uh, A parachute 
is a great picture of faith. You can know that the parachute will let you down gently to the world, uh, to the earth, but you really have faith in the parachute when you jump out of the plane and you're going to trust it. And it's the same with us. And you notice here that he has faith in the future, in hope of eternal life. He's looking to the future. And we think of the creation, it says in Romans 8, verses 23 to 25, the creation groans waiting for the end of all things. And then he says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wait the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And the hope of eternal life is the hope that we have as God's people. And we with patience wait for it. And again, that transforms our lives. That's got to make a difference in our lives. It's got to make a practical difference as to the way that we live. You know, we will face many trials and many difficulties, and there may be many times when it seems as if the church of God is at a low ebb, but we always know that in the end, the Lord Jesus Christ has the victory. The one who is coming again is the great victor. And we think of how uh, in 10 billion years from now, we will be on the victory side. We will be with the mighty victor, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who cannot lie, the one who has promised us many great and mighty things, who has promised us everlasting life, a home in heaven, peace and joy and uh, an absence of pain and an absence of parting and an absence of all the things that benight us in this world. And the God who cannot lie has promised us all of those things. And if we live in the light of that, it's got to make a difference in our lives. We, we, we're not going to be downcast. We're not going to be dispirited. We're not going to despair. We look up today to the mighty God of heaven. One more thing you can see here about the, uh, the uh, crux of what he believed, and that is that the truth is made known by preaching. Look at verse 3. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. We live in a privileged era. You think of Moses, you think of Abram, Noah, Job, any of the Old Testament saints, and they only had a partial revelation. Uh, they only had a part of the Word of God. Moses um, really uh, m maybe had none of the Word of God. Maybe the book of Job uh, is about all. But that's, we, we, we think of the Word of God, and now we have this full revelation from God. And God has sent out preachers, to bring and make known the precious word of God to those around us, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And what a mighty thing that is. What a great message it is that we have to proclaim in this day and generation. We need to make known the unsearchable riches of Christ. So there's something here about the contrast 
the Titus was to be, and there's something about the crux of what he believed, the truth that he believed in. But then notice the charge that he was given. Look at verse 5. He says, For this cause left thy thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Now you notice what uh, Titus was to do. The first thing that he was charged with was to set in order the, uh, the things that were wanting, something, some things that were wrong in the church in Crete. There were things that were missing in the church of Crete. One of them, of course, was office bearers, was elders, and he was to ordain elders. But I want you to see, first of all, before we come on to that, is that there is an order in the church of God. There is an order in the church of God. He was to set in order the things that were wanting. Now, there are many people today, and it is getting, it's getting more prevalent in this day, and they think, seem to have become disillusioned, they will say, with the, um, the institutional church. Now, if the, if the, what they mean by that is that they have become disillusioned with the apostasy and the false teaching that has come in to many parts of the institutional church. I'll say amen to what they're saying. I will certainly agree with what they're saying. If they mean that they are disillusioned with the lack of zeal or with the lack of uh, uh, initiative that has been shown in the church of God today uh, and the failures that can happen in the church of God today, I will certainly have sympathy with what they have to say. But I fear that with many people today, what they are wanting is to have done with authority. This is an age in which people undermine and want to undervalue authority. People don't like to be under authority. They don't like to be in a place where there are those that have the rule over them. And so it is in the church of God. And there are many people where they say, well, I will do my own thing. I'll stay at home. I'll not have any fellowship with other Christians. I'll meet them maybe in the coffee shop and we'll have a time of fellowship. And they substitute um, meeting in a coffee shop for the fellowship and they substitute the gathering uh, and the bringing together of God's people uh, for uh, the, their, their meeting in their own home. Well, that, no, if that's what you mean by being disillusioned with the institutional church, I have a problem with that, and the Word of God has a problem with that. The Bible says that there's an order to the church of God. There is an order to it. There are those that are set in authority. And it, we should not have a problem with them because this is the order that God has laid down. This is the order that God has set. And Paul had to send Titus here to set in order the things that were wanting. And he needed to remedy the matters here with urgency. And things needed to be set in order. There is an order. People don't like order today. They, they want some kind of free-flowing thing, something that there's no order to. No, you see here that Titus was to set in order the things 
that were wanting. Not only was he to set things in order, but he was to see that there were ordinations. He was to ordain elders in the church. He says, set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city. Elders, plural. Now, in the church history, you'll see here that many of the cities that Paul was dealing with wouldn't have been big. And so maybe there might have been uh, house churches here and there. I don't know, but we uh, don't think that there might have been many churches in every city. But you'll notice how certainly in many of the cities there would have been uh, one church. But you'll notice that there's a plurality of elders. He says that uh, ordain elders plural, in every city. And we see that there are a number of elders in every church. As we come down through church history, it came to be that there was one bishop or elder in every city. And then it came to be that there was a bishop in every diocese over a number of cities. And then that began to develop. But you'll see here in the New Testament church, that it was elders in every city, in every church. There was a number of elders. We can see the qualifications on down in the portion of Scripture that these elders were to have. But there's one more thing. Set, in, set things in order. See that there are ordinations. But then the other thing is stick to orderliness. He says, look at the last part of the verse as I had appointed thee. And what Paul was saying to Titus is, don't go beyond what I have told you to do. Don't uh, think that you have free reign here, Titus. You're only to do what God's Spirit dictates that you do. Just don't be going ahead and thinking, well, this is something that's convenient or something that will work or something that will draw a crowd. No, he says to Titus, he's not saying you just go your own way and uh, make sure that everything's done as you think may, may be best. No, he says, as I had appointed thee, there was an orderliness here. There was a, a, an authority. And, and Paul's an apostle here. We don't have apostles now because one of the um, qualifications was of an apostle was that he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. So we don't have apostles now, uh, but we do have presbytery. And when a man becomes an elder, a minister, who is just a teaching elder, we promise to be subject to the brethren. In other words, um, whatever the presbytery as a whole uh, brings forth, then that's what we stand by. Now, we might disagree with parts of it, and we might think, well, there's a better way of doing this than that. But when a presbytery or when a session says this is what we do, we stick by that because it is as, we, uh, as God has appointed us. We take it as... Now, if, if, if a presbytery or a session blatantly turns away from the Word of God, that's a different matter. Um, then we can reject it. But 
here is the uh, authority in the church. Uh, he, he says to Titus, don't go beyond what I've appointed you. Don't go beyond what the scriptures have told you, what God has told you, uh, told us. Don't, let's not go beyond that. And of course, that's what has to be happening in all of our churches. We don't go beyond what God has said to us now in his word. We, we don't uh, uh, breach what God has said in his word. And any innovation or any thought of adding to what God has said in his word. We've got to dismiss that as God has appointed us, as Paul had appointed. That's the way that we go in the church. And we've got to be faithful to the book. We've got to stand by the book. You know, sometimes it might think, seem to us as if we know better. There are times when we get the notions in our own heads that sometimes we think we know better than God. But God's way is always best. And that's what Titus was to learn. And that's what every true child of God has to learn. We lean upon our beloved tonight. We uh, are like the church uh, uh, who is the, uh, the army, with, uh, terrible with banners, and we come up out of the wilderness leaning upon our beloved. And may we lean upon the Lord tonight, and may we know his blessing in our lives. Let's just unite together at the throne of grace in prayer.